Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, September 6, 2023, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. First up, before we get to our questions, we want to give a special shout out to those of you who reached out after our 250th episode last week. It's hard to believe it's been almost five years that we've been doing these roundups. Uh, really uh, pleased with uh, all of your feedback and comments and uh, really appreciate the, good, the goodwill that uh, you're sending my way uh, in support of what we've been doing over on the roundup for the last five years. So thank you so much for um, all, your, all your appreciation and uh, goodwill. Uh, it's really a labor of love. Uh, really enjoy coming to you each week, sharing our opinions uh, next level down on what's really going on inside of international education topics on our campuses, in our communities, uh, and around the world, because that perspective that we talk about is also important in how we discuss international education. So let's get right to our questions that we uh, do each week. Uh, these questions come from our newsletter uh, that comes out in two forms each week, uh, either from an email subscription that you can get to uh, from our website, uh, and we're going to share the links uh, to the uh, website where you can subscribe. Uh, we, uh, it's our smieconsulting.org slash subscribe website. And that uh, is where you'll be able to uh, get uh, input your details, sign up for the email version of the newsletter. And that's if you prefer to get it that way. If not, I totally get it. And uh, we actually have another way where you'll be able to receive uh, the newsletter each week. I'll first share the link to the website, and then I'll also share uh, the link to the this week's edition of the newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And that uh, version of the newsletter, uh, plus uh, our LinkedIn version of the newsletter, uh, both give you opportunities to get the same content in a format that's uh, more digestible for you. So uh, as we do each week, uh, these uh, newsletters come out on Monday morning. Uh, the email version comes out about 9 a.m. Eastern, and then our LinkedIn version comes out a half hour earlier at about 8.30. So both these, uh, if you have these, uh, if you click on the links in the chat, uh, you'll be able to follow along with us and see where uh, which news stories we're uh, focusing our questions on today. And that's uh, one of the, one of the uh, uh, fun things to do, I guess, if in international ed news, if you get the newsletter on Monday, you can kind of guess uh, what topics might become uh, discussion-oriented focus here on Wednesday afternoons Eastern Time. So uh, these questions uh, we do each week are kind of next level. Uh, we do our hot takes on Mondays uh, in the newsletter that comes out. We put that together over the weekend and comes out on Mondays. And the newsletter uh, kind of gives you our, our quick thoughts on uh, what those what those individual topics have to do with what we do in international education. Uh, between the two of them, I'm proud to say we now have over 1,400 subscribers, either via LinkedIn or through the email version. Uh, really so so proud to be able to help uh, inform 
and keep up to date colleagues around the world uh, who are keen to stay connected with what's happening in international education. There are obviously a lot of great resources and outlets to gather news each week that put out news stories each week like the Pi, Li Pi News and, and several others, University World News. Uh, but uh, I, give, I give you my kind of hot takes on these and maybe give you a chance to uh, filter what's uh, most important to you and then click on those links where you feel you need a little bit more in depth. And that's what we do each week is we really try and use the time that we have with you in this half hour on Wednesday afternoons to really uh, talk about some of those issues that are reflected in these news stories uh, with a little bit more context and a little bit more interpretation and perhaps application for uh, where possible, where these uh, individual uh, stories might help us do what we do better in, in our international education on our campuses, in our communities. And as uh, for those of you who don't know, um, I am uh, dir currently Director of Global Recruitment and Partnerships at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I'm very f uh, fortunate that uh, the campus allows me to, to offer this, uh, this webinar along with, or this, not this webinar, my live chat along with my newsletter as part of what I see as my service to my field, international education, that I've been privileged to be a part of for 30 years now. Uh, it's all I've ever done as a working professional is uh, work in international education in various campuses, various positions, but primarily in international admissions student services. So what I'll share today are my takes on three questions or themes I've seen develop over the past few days that uh, deserve a deeper dive. And they deserve a deeper dive because they, they represent the kinds of topics that we probably talk about in our uh, daily, uh, in our daily jobs and co in conversations with colleagues offline uh, or conferences. Uh, there's some coming up in the next several months, uh, some events that will bring a lot of us together. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel uh, regularly for my job. I'll be off to, I spent 10 days in India uh, last month and I'm off to Ecuador and Brazil uh, on starting on Saturday for a couple different events. Um, and I'll talk more about that next week. Uh, I'll actually have just concluded a workshop I'm doing in Ecuador for universities there on internationalization. Uh, then I'm heading to Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil for an ISEF uh, Latin America agent meeting uh, where we'll be hoping, hoping to connect with some uh, sources of uh, English language student studies in the United States uh, and those type of things. But I'll talk more about that next week. But these kind of in-person gatherings are where we usually have the opportunity to, to kind of share our thoughts on what's really happening and impacting us directly and what our takes on whether any of these students that we're going to talk about in this first um, question uh, are were, uh, impacting their campuses. And the question is, first up, what should international students post about on social media? And this is more a cautionary tale about what not to post. And we, we've mentioned last week in our, in our um, roundup and when we were in India having an opportunity to talk about this, uh, I was in country when uh, the story broke of 21 Telugu students. And those who aren't aware, Telugu is what uh, students from Andhra Pradesh and Telangana in India are called. That's where over 70% of Indian students studying in the United States come from these two states in India. Uh, this uh, this was the big news uh, in the Indian media. Obviously, they uh, eat up anything to do with uh, 
higher education abroad and particularly the United States since we are their number one destination uh, for studies abroad uh, for, for Indian students. Uh, so this particular one is not the first time this, things like this have happened, but certainly every time it does, usually this time of year, it does get a lot of press. And that had to do with 21 Telugu students been uh, refused entry into the United States and sent home. Uh, largely because of um, their interviews, uh, initial interviews with CBP officers that uh, when they came through immigration at the airports, uh, uh, they had a, a variety of different issues that any one of which could have been uh, a reason to uh, send them home. Uh, some of them did not have airline tickets that would get them to their final destination where their university that they were trying to enter the United States on, uh, their I-20 and visa, uh, didn't have onward tickets to that, uh, and that could have been thousands of miles away. Uh, others uh, didn't have adequate answers for how they were going to fund their education. Uh, we talked last week about bank statements and, and the myth of, of uh, getting valid bank statements from students from certain parts of the world, and what that usually means is money's pooled to get a bank statement, and then five days later the money's out of the account after that bank statement's been issued. So. That's part of the challenge that this group of students had. They also were caught uh, once the once there were serious questions about the real intent of these students coming in. Uh, they um, their their phones and social media were were checked, and that's uh, a right that uh, Customs and Border Patrol has uh, has uh, has exam has expressed uh, that they have this right going back to the Trump administration and the Muslim travel bans and all the things that started popping, and with but not only uh, during the Trump administration, social media became uh, something that you had to. Uh, indicate uh, what accounts you've had, uh, what, where, what platforms you've had accounts on uh, when you first apply for your uh, DS-160, that's the non-immigrant visa application. You have to disclose that information during that and consular officers, when, they go, when students or visitors go for interviews, they can ask students about that any, if there's any red flags. Then also, uh, Customs and Border Patrol agents, uh, we had this uh, during the Trump administration, students who, uh, when they went, if they were, uh, were put into secondary, uh, at when coming, going through the border and meeting with the initial Border Patrol agent, if their, if their initial questions aren't answered satisfactorily, students are then put in secondary. And during that, that's the dreaded uh, windowless room that students get put in when there's now much deeper dives into what they're bringing, what they've, what they've got on their social media, on their phones, and that type of thing. And if students don't unlock their phones, they're, they will be turned around uh, and deported right away or refused entry right away. You're not actually deported unless you've come into the country to begin with. So that's uh, a little bit of the, the language that gets thrown around incorrectly during these kind of discussions. But uh, what, what, what these students were found to have had on messaging apps, on their social media, on their search engine history, uh, they were found to be looking for uh, part-time jobs off campus, which they're not allowed to do. Uh, in, uh, in the United States, as I mentioned last week, you, students do have the right in Canada, in the UK, Australia, other Western destinations to work off campus. Uh, 20 hours a week is usually the maximum that they're allowed to work, but in the U.S., they're not allowed to work off campus unless it's for emergency uh, authorization, only with emergency hardship authorization. Uh, that has to be granted before it can, students can work. 
that uh, only it only can be related to their uh, field of study in curricular work, uh, but practical training if they're entering into a program that requires it right away, which is a gray area for a lot of institutions. Most schools won't go that route. But uh, that's not something they can do until after they've done an academic term at most institutions, certainly not at the undergrad level. And at grad level, it's usually after a semester or at least a year before you can do that. So they were clearly on messaging boards in their messaging apps, on their search history, uh, to on their social profiles asking about uh, working off campus and uh, what jobs are available. And so that are, are those are red flags because that's clearly illegal and it questions the intent of why these, uh, for the, in the eyes of the Customs and Border Patrol folks who have the final say on letting anyone into the country, even returning citizens, uh, that could be um, U.S. citizens or permanent residents, they could be denied entry uh, by these Border Patrol folks if, they're, if they had cause. Uh, so this is uh, something that these students uh, made the mistake of posting about their intent to work off campus on their socials, in their messaging apps, in their search engine history. So that gave, the, and there were questions about whether they actually had their money, uh, not having tickets to their final destination. All these things, things rose red flags for these uh, Customs and Border Patrol officers. So these 21 students were sent home. Uh, so that is a, obviously a cautionary tale. We talked about that in our newsletter uh, and, and as how we were uh, in country when a lot of these questions were starting to be asked while we were at U.S. college representatives or at fairs. So uh, it's something that we need to be prepared to answer, respond to if we do get questions from prospective students and parents, frankly, uh, that we might interact with uh, in the next few months uh, about what, what happened in this case. Uh, obviously, none of us know the exact details of every student that's involved, but those that are close to the story, and we've put, dropped the link to the, one of these Indian news outlets that probably has, does have correct uh, or in, has links to those students, uh, that it really represents for uh, for Indian students, uh, all of our agents that, uh, so after this news broke, they saw the story, they were posting things about don't cut corners, don't, uh, that we talked about last week. These are the kind of things that we really need to be uh, making sure as much as we can in our pre-arrival information with prospective students that they've thought through all the different implications of what they're doing, what they can and can't do, and that this can be a reason why they get uh, refused entry into the United States if they are starting to do these kind of things. And uh, does that drive, drive the thought of doing this completely from their mind? Probably not, but at least makes them more aware of it and can uh, at least think about things before they start posting uh, randomly about uh, all their different experiences. So I think this is, um, this, uh, the issue is what they can post on social media. It's really about what they shouldn't post on social media. They can post whatever they want, but there are implications to, to posting when you have uh, Border Patrol agents that if they're not satisfied with students' initial responses to questions, legitimate questions about source of funding, uh, where they're going, all of these things that uh, are relevant to allowing a person entry into the United States. Uh, all of those things, if they're not taken into consideration, uh, would mean a Customs Border Patrol officer would be derelict in their duty of not f trying to assess that for each person that is coming to their window and uh, seeking entry into the country. So certainly a lesson learned for those students, those 21 students that will probably never be allowed back in the U.S. again because of this. But uh, it should serve as a lesson to others 
and a lesson to us as uh, international admissions people uh, in our communication with students. These, these are things that we need to not say, don't ever talk about <laughs> looking for off-campus jobs in your, in, your, in your chats, in your messaging apps, in your search engine history. Uh, those are things that uh, won't serve them well. Uh, it's, not, it's just making them aware of what's, what's possible and what's not possible as uh, part of their benefits of being an international student. Their rights and responsibilities also about being an international student in the United States. So there's a lot of positives there uh, in terms of lessons we can learn as we advise prospective students, uh, particularly those later in the admission cycle who are uh, getting, getting their I-20s, going for their visas, things to, that we can help remind students about that uh, you can't, if your intent is to come here and work off campus, do not come. Uh, if you, uh, right away. Uh, if your intent is to come here and then transfer out, do not come. Uh, this transfer out piece is also in, in included in some of this. Some of these students were probably never intending to go to the school that issued them the I-20 that they got their visa and uh, entered, tried to enter the country on. They're probably going to transfer out to a lower cost program. Uh, if they were admitted to an, a master's program, then they might apply uh, switch, uh, apply for a transfer out to, to do a second bachelor's or some other uh, lower cost option for them. That's uh, not an unusual thing, not just for students from uh, uh, from certain parts of India, but uh, Bangladesh has had this problem in the past. Other countries have had it as well, trying to transfer out. Um, that brings up the issue of one of our agents this week uh, sent us out. Uh, hey, we're, we're we're we haven't seen an uptick in this, but whether we have seen potentially students uh, trying to subvert processes, uh, and we're thinking about ways that uh, can potentially nip this problem in the bud, and that included anything from. Uh, getting students to sign something that says if they transfer out, this is when they issue the I-20, uh, that students have to sign something before they uh, before it would be released to them, that if they, if they transfer out after arriving in the country, uh, before they enroll at your institution, they have to pay a significant fee, $3,000 or something. If that's known up front before they actually go for their visa and come into the country, then potentially that's an option. Others require significant tuition deposits, up to a semester's worth of uh, tuition deposits that can also, in some countries, help them get their visas. Uh, so and some of our agents are encouraging us to do that, uh, to require larger tuition deposits. So this also nips that problem in the bud, because it's in their interest too, because they don't want to do all the work to get students in, get in the country and then leave, and then they don't enroll, they don't get paid their commission from us, and that, that's, a, that's a negative there. So it's in both everybody's interests, agents and universities, and in, in, in effect, the students to be on the same page on these things and expectations need to be clear. So enough on question one. Let's move on to question two, a much broader and deeper question that uh, is really one I was grateful that uh, I saw the piece last week, uh, University World News article from uh, Fanta Ah. She was recently in South Africa attending an international education conference for African, uh, African nations and was really inspired. Obviously, she's originally from, uh, from Sub-Saharan Africa and as, is now NAFSA president, or not, not president, NAFSA CEO. Uh, and former NAFSA president as well uh, during her time at American University, her many decades of service there. I've had the pleasure of knowing Fanta since probably 2009, 2010 uh, through Education USA. And uh, when I was working with Education USA, she was a regular speaker at advisor trainings and workshops and forums, regional forums. So she is so well respected in the field and is the best thing that NAFSA has ever done in terms of leadership. So for me, uh, seeing her, uh, she's always. Uh, 
passionate about anything she speaks about. Uh, really, really, she's upped her LinkedIn game quite a bit since she's uh, become NAFSA, NAFSA CEO. Really impressed with uh, uh, all her her, her posts and, uh, and her walks around D.C. and just sharing different aspects of her job. Uh, and, and, and seeing that is, is really refreshing and paints a much better picture, I think, of NASA as an organization than we've seen in decades past. So uh, her article kind of addresses some of the things that are percolating in interna international education that uh, we are perhaps a little bit blind to uh, in the U.S., uh, in the West. And it's the title of her article is International Educators Cannot Evade the Needs of the Future. And that's a call to us that, uh, that in, in her, her words, the status quo cannot save us. Uh, we are in a situation now where we're an increasingly global, gl ever connected world, a small, increasingly smaller world because the distances are bridged with communication uh, so much easier than they were even in Africa uh, 10, 15 years ago. And that there are issues that have been percolating for years about uh, the privilege of the West and in terms of how we see uh, Africa and other, other developing countries as just uh, resources for us to come and plunder where our, in the colonial past our, 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 the empires would take the natural resources from a country uh, and take them back, back to the home countries and, uh, and then uh, leave the, leave the the affected countries less off, less well off, instead of building them up. And the same argument has been used often to describe our attitude in the West to, uh, to how we treat developing countries as sources of students and faculty, and that it's a one-way street, that we rarely ever see a lot of students going the other way from us to them. Uh, there's, uh, it's uh, seen as a brain drain uh, in a lot of ways for faculty, for students, for brightest, best and brightest going abroad and then not returning, uh, not reinvesting, and no, none of us going there and doing, this, doing likewise, or very few of us. So I think this is her, her plea uh, in her, she was speaking to her audience there in South Africa for this conference. Uh, she was there at the same time the, the BRICS uh, folks were meeting uh, in South Africa, uh, BRICS, BRICS communities, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and, and South Africa. Uh, they, at that meeting, they also agreed to more than double their membership uh, to include Ethiopia, Egypt, um, uh, UAE, uh, Iran, and um, uh, Argentina as well. So added six new countries to the mix to that to that that group uh, that organization as kind of a balance to um, to the Western G20 G7 uh, kind of conversations that go on as a even uh, anti West uh, potentially uh, feel to it though some of those countries Brazil South Africa maybe not wanting to go that down that road uh, India certainly in between certainly has its issues with China uh, regularly feuds with them but has alignment with Russia on certain items but uh, is become becoming more open to the West as well so there's some kind of dichotomies going on there in terms of power struggles even within BRICS but beside the point uh, this is uh, that is sort of a reaction to a lot of what happens in the West as uh, the West being uh, the dominant force in the world economically politically and that uh, BRICS is sort of seen as a counterbalance but uh, as Fanta talked about in her speech uh, she identified four major forces that um, the 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 forces we have not really addressed uh, for a long time. 
And uh, Fonza's background is as a sociologist, uh, international educator, and a citizen of the world uh, is, is the way she looks at. She sees four major forces that we need to contend with in our jobs in international education. Uh, first, the learning loss for our children, children and students and the collective trauma we've yet to fully admit as a result of the pandemic. Uh, the social inequities have been exacerbated uh, and deserve reckoning, uh, racially, ethnically, religiously, caste disparities, all that in terms of educational access as a result of the pandemic. And it's created an opportunity gap, and that includes digitally. Uh, a third, a polarization and extremism stoked by political divides are manifested in the rhetoric and actions of me first, my people first, my nation first, uh, those types of things. And uh, those of us in international ed can certainly in the U.S. can certainly relate to some of that language that we've heard over the last, uh, last few years and certainly in the last administration. And uh, finally, uh, the uh, impact of climate and environmental justice our lack of uh, that these are both local and global issues that uh, demand our attention. So with indigenous, com indigenous communities and uh, women uh, that are impacted by our, our policies, politically and economically disadvantaged groups in the world that uh, don't have access uh, and that's something that we, we as uh, international educators are, are constantly trying to, to assist in, but are, are we doing it uh, with always with the best intent of the world's uh, development uh, of their, the home countries of some of these people that we're trying to recruit to our campuses. Are we keeping that end in mind? And that's uh, it's a really thought-provoking article, uh, basically her speech to uh, to this group in South Africa. I would recommend that uh, it's something something as a caution. It's a reminder to us to to kind of a check on our hearts uh, where we are with. Uh, with, uh, with uh, why we do what we do in international education to kind of bring us back to center. And I think it's uh, an article that, uh, that we should all read uh, as international educators so we, we stay on top of what's, what's happening in the wider world um, and have that global perspective that I, was, I always talk about here on the Roundup. Okay, last question of the day. And this is one that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. And it is, how many international students is too many? All right, let's let's get let's get to it. We're talking about Canada here. I'm not going to mince words. Uh, Canada, according to uh, news stories uh, from the Pi News, that they're expecting 900,000 international students this year by year's end. And what does that look like? Uh, as of the end of uh, the let's see, the Open Doors numbers from last November, which were from the end of the 2022 academic year. There were uh, just under 950,000. That's end of academic year, FY20, or in 2022, uh, 2021 to 2022. That was 950,000. In the United States, where we have 4,500 universities, over 6,000 CVIS eligible schools, secondary schools, university levels, college levels, vocational schools that we have in the United States, where 950,000 last year or enrolled or counted as F1, J1 students. Wow. Canada, this year, 2023, is about to hit 900,000. Maybe surpass 900,000. There were already 800-something last year. Those are mind-boggling numbers. Canada, geographically, is a little bit bigger than the United States. Uh, a lot of it is under unpopulated land in the north and west, north and west of the country. So we're not, we're not population-wise, Canada is under 40 million. Um, we are 
in the United States, 330 million. Canada has about 150 universities and probably 300 colleges. So less, less, than, less than 600 higher education institutions across the country that enroll 800,000 now up to 900,000. Now, all of these, I will make, make clear, uh, my colleagues uh, HESA, Alex, uh, Alex uh, uh, is a good, a good friend of mine. He's the president of HESA. He always tells me that, that those numbers in Canada are not just higher ed, they're also vocational, and much more vocational than uh, we, uh, we, we, we could ever hope to do here in the United States. So that's a conversation for a larger day. Uh, don't, know, don't know what the exact breakdown is, but uh, it's closer to half. Uh, our are uh, at the vocational level and half or half or more, maybe a little less than half are at the university level. So uh, these are these are numbers that are mind-boggling for the number of institutions that they have. Uh, Project Atlas, I think, in their last edition had Canada at about 25 to 30 percent, uh, somewhere in that range, were were of their higher ed institutions, 25 to 30 percent of their population, student population, were international. Uh, Australia is 30-35%, uh, UK is in the 25 to 30% as well. These institutions, these countries, are all, most all institutions are having to receive significant numbers of students to get up to that level. Some, some institutions, some of these vocational colleges are 90% international students uh, because they're really seen as pathways for immigration and work in, in, into Canada, which is a country that needs immigrants to fuel its workforce because uh, their, their, their domestic uh, birth rates are not from non-immigrant families are not significant enough to sustain future uh, growth economically. So they need to bring in the talent. So they've set up these pipelines, but it has a lot of unintended consequences. And uh, the consequences that we're talking about here, uh, the Pi, uh, Pi News article says that the country um, is, I mean, that 900,000, if they hit that this year, that might only be 100,000 off what we're going to have in the U.S. by the end of, uh, from the Open Doors number. We'll be probably back closer to a million uh, from the SEVIS numbers. But they're dangerously close to overtaking us. I don't think they will because they're nearing breaking point. And as the Pi News title of the article says, that integrity of the system is at risk, says one of the ministers in Canada. There is recognition in the government that there would be perverse effects associated with growth in recent years, risks to the integrity of the system. Housing is probably the biggest significant risk to this, that um, there, there, there are players that are gaming the system, uh, particularly among the private colleges, the vocational colleges that we've been, have been ballooning across Canada, uh, these vocational colleges, the uh, two or three year degree programs, uh, that, or diploma programs, excuse me. There was talk about CAP uh, last, last week uh, from the Canadian housing minister. So the housing crunch has been coming for a while, that there just simply isn't enough housing to accommodate all these new international students. Um, and there, this is something we've been talking about regularly on the Roundup for the last year or so, two years. Uh, certainly this was a big impact during the pandemic. And in South Australia, we saw universities selling off housing stock that is now, in order to keep from having to lay off uh, thousands of faculty and staff, now they're in a position where they, they have huge housing shortages and don't have places to put people and people living in tents inside rooms. Uh, so it's very, very bizarre all over the world. Uh, there are UK universities in Scotland and England that are saying don't come 
don't get don't get on a plane to come unless you have housing already sorted, and that's a big deal. Uh, that we don't really face a lot of in the United States. Some of us are really stretched in urban areas, maybe perhaps not having as much housing stock available, as opposed to rural or suburban campuses where they have room to grow and build and all of that. Uh, some of us in urban areas don't have as much flexibility in terms of housing, our own housing, so we have to look for outside housing. So I think there's a lot, a lot of challenges going on here with Canada that uh, it is uh, getting near breaking point. One of the other articles that I uh, shared uh, was uh, a, a Canadian article that talks about one in 48 people in Canada are international students currently. And that uh, that number, if it grows to 900,000, is, is just going to be uh, just uh, un, unsustainable. So uh, it's a, there, there's a lot of, um, a lot of challenges uh, in, in coming up. Uh, in, in, in Canada, and it'll be interesting to see how they deal with these, uh, with the housing shortage and other, other factors that are impacting what, uh, what their institutions can and can't do. So we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, in the, in the months and years to come uh, as we get closer to, uh, to uh, uh, regaining all of our post-pandemic numbers. Canada's already surpassed their, their, their largest total ever from the previous year. So those numbers will always become uh, more and more of a concern, particularly for those in government and even on campus, that uh, when you realize when is too many international, when is the interna number of international students you have too many uh, to really uh, dilute the reason for having them in the first place. Uh, when your classes are, as an international student, you're coming to uh, coming to, to come to university, uh, a college course, and 90% of the students in your class are from your your home country or even your home state. Uh, that's troubling, and that's uh, not the reason why you came uh, to have those experiences. So, interesting to see where this goes, but it's a conversation that I don't think ends here. It's going to be one that we'll be talking about for months and years to come. So, until next time, wish you the very best. We'll be coming to you live next week from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Until then, have a great day. Cheers. <music>